This sermon, Go and Stand Firm, was preached by guest pastor Tom Wilkins on Sunday, January 9th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. You know, Lisa and I had big plans for Christmas this year. I had two weeks off. I worked for a school district. If you work for a school district, God bless you. But isn't the time off, isn't the time off awesome, awesome? We get a lot of time off, and that's such a kindness. And so we had two weeks off during the Christmas break, and so we had a lot of plans. We were going to hang out in El Paso for a week, and then we were going to be coming out here on December 26th. And on the 7th, we had a, a seven-day camping trip planned at Catalina State Park. It was going to be an awesome Christmas with the kids. We're just going to camp, like literally, like right here, stare at the beautiful mountains every morning, and then run over to our family's houses for Christmas. It was going to be great. But in God's providence, my mom, she's 85 years old, Evelyn is her name, her and I came down with COVID, followed by Lisa and her dad, Lisa's dad, his name is Bill, he's 93 and he lives with us, and all of our Christmas plans were changed. Actually, they were all canceled. <laughs> it felt like such a loss. If you were in our home, it wasn't as humorous as it is today. It's very difficult for us uh, to face this. In fact, it was pretty strange. We have a life-threatening illness. For some, we get it, and we're disappointed we can't come to Tucson and be with the family. Disappointed that we can't come and be with this precious church. Lisa boxed up all the presents. If you can imagine this, if you're a mom or if you're a grandma, she boxed up all the presents and drugged them down the hallway and stuffed them in the back room of our house. We didn't know what the future held. So much seemed to have been taken away and it certainly wasn't easy. And so it is actually with the church. More greater than what I just described. It was not easy to go through the change of plans at Christmas. And by the way, spoiler, what an awesome, redemptive trip this weekend has been. Lisa and I didn't imagine that anything would have been better than to have been here camping and hanging out with the family. But it was better than we could imagine. Um, it was awesome being over at Scotty Melody's house, all the grandkids, the chaos, the paper. You have to know my wife. She is Santa. Uh, my wife is Santa. And uh, probably Mr. and Mrs. Claus. You can work that one out. And it was awesome making memories with the family. And I think both of us in the end would have never imagined it could have been redeemed like this. But the Lord redeemed it. And spoiler, we're going to discover that with the church. Things are amazingly difficult in the church. Last Sunday in Derek's message, we learned that the church, though filled with God's amazing grace in innumerable ways, is not perfect. And at times, the path that she is on is not easy. In fact, I think it's better to say at times the trouble is great and severe. And yet we will see in today's text that although that is the case and it is ramping up, as you've gone through Acts, if you've been following that while you're in this church, the narrative, it gets intense about the persecution that is coming upon God's people. It's going to get worse. And yet the spoiler is, he will redeem it. He will redeem it. If you would stand with me, and let's read together a long portion of scripture. So if you came tired this morning, now you get to stretch your legs, but read God's amazing word. Let's read it together. And I'm going to start actually 
in uh, chapter 5. I don't know what chapter I told you to turn to, but we're in Acts chapter 5, and I'm going to begin in verse 11. Our text is actually 12 through the end of the chapter, so buckle up. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. That was right at the heels of Ananias and Sapphira being killed in the gathering of the church. Members of the church killed by God in the church. Great fear came upon them. Now, Luke's connecting word. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so they even carried out, or so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and he said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they all, uh, they all called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, would it, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men you've put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, <laughs> for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. You know, I'm sorry, I have to break from the text just for a second. This was a moment for me where I actually said to my wife the other day, I said, this is crazy when you read this first century narrative. It seems like the people were walking around with concealed carry rocks all the time, <laughs> just ready to throw down. And that is the scene. The scene is ripe. Violence seems to be in the air. Now let's move on. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care about what you're to do with these men. For before these days, Theodius, Theodos, you pronounce it, rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So the present case, I tell you, 
Keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them. Charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they, the apostles, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Let's pray together. You may be seated. Father, I pray that at the preaching of your word, that your power would be made manifest to strengthen your church. Lord, I also pray that your power be manifest in mercy to save those present that have rejected you. Be merciful to them like you were merciful to me. Forgive them, save them. Jesus, I ask that the church would be strengthened, but my final request is that you would be exalted. Yes, strengthen your church. We are weak and the times are not easy and suffering is coming. We'll just hang in there a little while, and it's going to be hard. But I pray that today and in the end, you will be exalted in our hearts, but in the world. Jesus, you receive all the honor and glory. Do your name as you are right, you are at the right hand of the Father even now, and your Holy Spirit is present with us even now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, strangely enough, as I was praying, it occurred to me, did I skip a section of the text? My wife's nodding her head. Why do you think I said it was good to have her? (laughs) Silly comments about concealed carry stones, so shame on me. Verse 27 And when they had brought them, they sat before the council, and the high priest questioned them, questioned the apostles, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree, 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Thank you for your patience with the preacher this morning. You know, the big idea this morning, as I try to summarize this just a little bit, it sounds kind of crazy that we would read such a lengthy portion of Scripture from God's Word and then say, well, here's how I would like to summarize it. It's like the Reader's Digest condensed version. That's not what this is. That's not what preaching is. It's a help for us, for us to see the sense of the text, so that we kind of get our, our handle on it, so that we go right back to the text and get to the depth of it. So the big idea, or at least kind of a summary, is the church is commissioned in the gospel of Jesus, that will advance in power no matter what. That's kind of what we're going to camp around for this message. The church is commissioned in the gospel of Jesus that will advance in power no matter what. And here are the points that we're going to consider. The church's gospel mission advances. All, they all three start with that. The gospel church, excuse me, church's gospel mission advances in power, in opposition, and in suffering. They're going to look at some application, um, at least some specific applications. And you all know that during the preaching of the word, often the Lord is already breathing or breathing forth a desire to apply the word. When we hear God's word, we do, we do see that mirror that we hold up, and it helps us see where the Lord desires to magnify his name, to help us adjust our view of ourselves, to see our desperate need for the Savior that is certainly occurring along the way, but we'll look at some specific ways uh, that we can consider applying this as well. Number one, the first point, the church's gospel mission advances in power. So with the narrative ringing in our ears, let's consider this, the church's gospel mission advances in power. First thing we're going to look at is, first, the gospel mission is God's work. So if we're considering this mission is being brought forth or being issued forth, the first thing that we have to see is it's God's work that's issuing forth. This is not some man's scheme or a way that men have come up with to declare a really good or an effective message about God. God is declaring this message himself. It's his work. So it advances in power from his throne room in that sense. So that's a helpful way to consider this text. And every time we pick up his word is the mission or the word, this witness of Christ is being breathed out on the church and on non-believers in such a way that God's work is being revealed. Well, this one is, it's his. The gospel mission is powerful because it's his gospel mission. Let's consider, we'll talk a little bit about what I mean by gospel in a minute, but mission is that moving forward of the church and its proclamation of the person of Jesus being the Christ, the promised one of God, the Savior of the world. Let's consider here, just right at the beginning of what we've even read, that God's work is already being evident. With the opening words, now signs and wonders were regularly being done. It's opening. The section opens with men is a man is not doing this. Signs and wonders. Right away, I don't know what you think. When I hear the word signs and wonders, I first or least, by God's grace, think well, it's not from me. 
These are signs and wonders. And because I'm a believer in Christ, it must be the Lord doing this. And it is in this case. Signs and wonders are moving forward in verse 12. And they're all healed. Look at that in verse 16. We know that you know, it, Luke doesn't use hyperbole in these descriptions. The way he's described is that people gathered out of the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted by unclean spirits, and they are all healed. Also, it's God's words of command. We see that in this text. If you skip quickly to the angel of the Lord speaking in the prison. Now look, in my mind, when I think of the public prison, and even the commentators kind of point this out, but it helped me because I, I grew up in El Paso. I can imagine what our prison or our jail must be like. Some of you may have been in jail by God's grace. When Derek is back, we can ask him what it was like when he was in jail. And, uh, and so I'm one of those goody two-shoe kids that grew up in El Paso. And they took me down to the juvenile detention home along with the other kids in junior high to scare us straight. Y'all remember that, scared straight? And I remember going down and visiting that jail and I can imagine the scene in this public, uh, this public jail right out of Hollywood, it seems. The, the apostles are thrown in the public jail, meaning they're likely all in the same room with a bunch of other tattooed guys belonging to games, doing push-ups and sit-ups and staring you down in the corner. Man, a ton of corny, silly stories just flood into my mind. But that's the scene. The apostles are thrown in a real dingy, stinky, horribly, horrible conditions jail. And in the jail, God's voice speaks forth. It's his work. Also, God's Holy Spirit at the end of our text, or at the end of actually uh, Paul's, um, excuse me, Peter's proclamation in verse 32, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being given to empower this mission, but also to obey him. And I love the way it's described in that text. The Holy Spirit is a witness this doesn't mean the Holy Spirit, like us, stands there as like witnesses of what Jesus had done. There's a big difference in our witness and the Holy Spirit's witness. Imagine the things God himself sees in all that was happening in redemptive history at this time. It's his work. The gospel is God's work. Maybe a longer way I could have uh, communicated this one point, instead of it just simply being God's gospel mission advances in power. It's God's gospel, or the church's gospel uh, mission advances in power is, here's a better way to say it, God's power, in such, God's power in such a way that it is clear that God has done it and not man, and God has initiated it and accomplished it in such a way that we cannot point to man, and yet we will turn in the end and worship, thank, and glorify him. It's a long point. That's why I didn't word it that way. But that's a better way to say what I was trying to say, that this is God's work, and his power is moving in such a way that it is clear that it is only him accomplishing this and not man doing this. I love the almost humor in the text, that while they're all gathering, I hear those words in, uh, let's see here, in verse 21 and a half. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, and they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. You and I are in the story like they're not there. And to me, that's funny. 
But in the text, it's so clear that God is the one at work doing this. Even the men that hold all of the power over these men's lives don't even have a clue they're not in the jail. Another thing about this is the apostles are not supermen. Sometimes when we read the text, particularly when we get into, particularly when we get into Acts, is we have this view of the apostles as if they are like supermen, endowed with some kind of universally given power that enables them to do superhuman acts. Now, if you look at the opening words of the text, there's a number of things that are happening here. One, there are miracles occurring in Solomon's portico at the temple, in that outer part of the temple, and miracles are occurring, and it has the multitudes of people so moved, everyone is bringing the sick out. In fact, there's this strange picture, and Lisa actually helped me with this one. Another reason I love my wife, I've got a biblical commentator that lives with me. Particularly in this thing that even if Peter's shadow might cast on them, is these people at that day, if really important people and uh, folks out of Hollywood or whatever, they're in town or um, really important in the nation are going to be walking down the street. It was common that you would get your kids and you'd get them out there. So even if this very, very important person is coming down the street, this VIP, to get the kids out and shove them in front of them in the pathway. It's weird. You know, we're like, hey, clear away. Clear is throwing them in front of the people. And that's the scene. These apostles are being lifted up as if they're superhuman. This isn't just only desperately sick people, which it definitely includes. It includes the culture of people like, these guys are amazing. We got to get in on this. And that's the scene. So it's good that we know, at least from the text before this and after this, these are not superhuman men. These men are just like you and I. It's a qualifying statement but have been chosen by God, given a mission by God, and empowered by God to declare the life-giving message of repentance, forgiveness, and salvation that is in Jesus and in him alone. The church is commissioned in the gospel of Jesus, and it will advance in power, no matter what. This mission will advance because it's his mission, and he advances it. It must be said that he does not need us to advance his mission. But it is clear about the church that he has providentially called us to this work. And he will make certain that's the case. So in other words, the Lord is not going to change his plan and issue forth his mission finally without the church. He will issue forth his his but he is going to include the church. And we find that in the text as well, in these words, by the hands of the apostles. So second, so first, it's God's work. Second, it is God's work being given or placed into the hands of the apostles. Placed and given into your and my hand. The word really, or at least what we're seeing is, we're stewards of this mission. It's God's mission, and we're stewards. And here, let me draw this out just a little bit. Here in verse 12 through 16, there's specific, miraculous, God-empowered acts that are performed by the hands of the apostles. And this by the hands of the apostles means that God will work 
through his church as stewards. And stewardship is the message, the good news, the mission is owned by God himself. So the word stewardship comes into play, meaning I own the home and all the things in the home, and I bring a steward into my home to care for those things. And I take on the heart of a steward that says, these things do not belong to me, but they mean the world to me because my master means the world to me. And so I care for them as a steward. They don't belong to me, but I will take care of them as if they were mine because I belong to him and these things belong to him. So stewardship is in mind here. We work and maintain and proclaim and teach and preach that which belongs to Christ. This is hopeful to you and I because of what's coming in a ramped up way against the church. Opposition and suffering are the next two points and you and I must see the hopefulness that this message is not owned by ours, um, owned by ourselves, it's owned by God himself because we're now, I'm just going to keep running to the end because God will make sure it continues forward. If you and I owned this mission, consider how scary that would owning, like literally owned the gospel mission, like it's, like its success depended upon us is a nightmare to me. I've worked with an atheist for four years and haven't said a word about Christ first to him. If this message belongs to me, well, then I have failed miserably with my boss. Uh, but the mission is not owned by me. I'm commissioned in God's mission. You and I are called to preach that which belongs to him. So we're watchful and careful with its content. We're also obedient to his call, guarding and proclaiming, guarding and proclaiming that which belongs to him. It's a little bit off the subject of the message, but it is certainly grounded in what is going on in the message. We cannot change the mission message either. We must guard the content of the message. It'd be like going and delivering that which belongs to God, but only partially. That's why when Peter speaks in that text that I forgot to read this morning, is so important because of who he's speaking to. He gives it all to them and doesn't hold back. So not only is the, God, is the mission God's mission, it is also uh, in our hands as stewards. Third, God's power is a mission advances in power Third, it's important to realize this. God's power will be revealed in the advance of the mission in also such a way that it is clear that he is the one finally advancing it. I've already said it one way, meaning it's not us advancing it, but he's also going to make sure in the end it is he that is advancing it, meaning that once we see it advance, we're going to turn and worship and marvel and be shocked and amazed and glorify in him. You see the additional joy of adding the clarity to the speech, it's, it does belong to him. We are stewards of it, it doesn't belong to us, but we do take ownership as if it ours, is ours, and now we're going to declare it in such a way, and by the way, it's going to happen in such a way that in the end we can't take credit for it in the first place, but better, much better than just that, like, well, I can't take credit for it, no, I can't take it, no, actually it is clear that he is the one that's moving it forward. 
the signs and wonders, divine angelic presence, the command of God's voice, the Holy Spirit witnessing, empowering all. He is the one advancing it. He is the one giving strength to it and will continue it on. Now we know this, actually just right in the page, right before this, in the narrative in Acts 4. I don't know who preached this text, but let's look at the apostles' prayer. Just We'll skip through it, but they prayed that God would reveal his power in Acts 4, perform signs and wonders, and he did. That's the summary of that part. You can look at it beginning in verse 28. Um, actually, let's just back up. Actually, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out to your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered, like we sang this morning, was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God in boldness. So we cry out in prayer to God who will advance this. That's point one. Transition. The gospel, the church's gospel mission advances in power. But the text now reveals it advances in opposition. Our text makes it clear that God has commissioned us in this amazing gospel mission. And he knows the opposition and suffering that is coming. He knows the opposition and suffering that is coming, and so he calls the church to stand. So let's go look at those words now in this next section. Verse 20. The angel of the Lord, in verse 19, opened the prison doors and brought them out. Oh, what a joyful moment that must have been for the disciples. They're finally out of jail uh, that night. And then a voice from God himself, go and stand. Go and stand. That word stand in the biblical text is stand firm. Hold your ground. Hold your ground. Now, when I first hear those words in the text, hold your ground, I'm only thinking up until that point. But I'm not thinking in the full narrative, God knows what's coming for the apostles. And so he's telling them, in a way, you're going to need to stand firm. It's not like, now get out there and be strong. It includes that. It certainly includes that. I imagine the Lord talking to us like we're little kids. We can't always tell kids all the little things. Now, you need to stay right here on the sidewalk with daddy so we'll be safe. We'll say that. That's all they get. We don't go as far as say, stay right here on the sidewalk with daddy. Because if you step off the curb, you're going to get smashed by a vehicle that weighs about 5,000 pounds. No, the Lord in his kindness is actually giving them a heads up with this na the nature of this word. He says, now go and hold your ground. It is shocking how difficult things are about to get for the church. It's shocking what's going to occur. And we know it even from this text. Sometimes we can read past it, but real difficulty is coming their way. And so he says, go and stand firm. It'd be great if you just set them free on the street, but they're commissioned in the mission, so he tells them to go, but he says, go stand firm, hold your ground. And here's the effect of this command. It carries with it the effect that they're going to need to be ready 
to be opposed. This is not a simple defensive stand, but a readiness of the heart and will and boldness in action. But I would add to this a confidence, not arrogance, in our stand. Maybe another way to say this is hold your ground. There's a humble steadfastness that these men are called to, that the church is called to. We are called to stand our ground because it's going to be difficult. And he doesn't leave it there. He says, go and stand firm in the temple. The very next words, in the temple. Go to the place under the commissioning of God that so desperately needs to hear the gospel. Now, I'm going to bring this out just for a little bit. Super public and power center kinds of places is where he's called the church. And I think sometimes we've shrunk back from our mission. This is not a call to the, the American church that you need to get out there on social media and start preaching and declaring Jesus so that whoever, and you put them in that category, will finally get the message they need that they are not as good as you. It's the way a lot of Christian mission sounds on social media. Shame on you all, the way you're acting, it's the way it sounds. This is not just a simple defensive action in that case. But it is a call to a place, a specific place. And in this case, the power center. Look, I know you all have listened to the news. January 6th is ripe with a lot of trouble. I don't know what you want me to say about January 6th. But there is the king of telling these people, telling his disciples, you go to the power center. The reason I bring up January 6th is that's where the conservatives went and camped out. Caused some trouble, serious trouble. In a way, it's a nightmare. The media has made it into all kinds of different things. But we... You have to see this from the text. They're not just at a really important place. They're at the center place of this nation's politics and religion. There's no more important place in the nation of Israel than this place. He's called up to the places in our world. We are certainly called into the obscure third world locations. Consider our brief one week trip down to Guatemala and San Salvador. El Salvador. I, tiny place. Very little money. People are just a mess down there. And we spent a week on a missions trip really more of an informational trip than it was anything for us. The Lord goes to the obscure places. The gospel goes to obscure places. He's called the church to go to places that you and I would avoid like the plague, if you think about it. It'd be like if the Lord came right now to us and said, all right, regardless of what happened on January 6th, I need you all to get up right now, and I want you to go to the nation's capital and make sure that they've all gathered and tell them all 
about Jesus. Is that foreign to you? It seemingly is to me. But that's exactly what's going on in the text. Here we see that the places where God calls the church to proclaim the message are places where opposition is guaranteed. Not a possibility. It's guaranteed. Arguments and opposition are waiting in these places. We're often caught off guard and turn tail and run from conflict and opposition. I don't know what you're like, but I avoided fights like the plague when I was in school. I had one fist fight, and it was with a girl who was taller than me in the fourth grade, and she won. I hate conflict. I hate it. I'll avoid it like the plague. But you know what? God is not surprised by argument and opposition and hostility in the mouths and actions of man. It started in the garden. Adam and Eve turned on God by desiring to be God's And when he moves towards Adam, Adam's first response is to charge and accuse God to his face. It wasn't like an argument began in the garden. Adam and Eve have so far fallen away from their relationship with God in that one act of defiance against them that it completely turned them against him. And the war with God and the opposition towards God and the men's violence towards God began before they were ever ushered out of the garden. Oh, I do hear Adam wanting to blame his wife. That's in there. But if you hear the text, he does blame his wife and shifts the blame to God himself. It's the woman you gave me. Our fight and arguing and hostility began then. God is not taken back by this. And we know in the narrative of the gospel, Jesus is opposed to his face seemingly at every single turn. People waiting around with rocks in their pockets, so to speak, just looking for their opportunity to take him out, looking for the way to argue with him. He talks to a prostitute, Shouldn't be talking to them. Goes into sinners and tax collectors' houses. Should not even be there. Who does he think he is? He says he's going to tear down the temple. That's blasphemy. And the argument goes on. Gathered with the Roman guards, they blindfold him and strike him and tell him, prophesy, who hit you? Do you know we know the answer to that scene? He could see every motive through the very core of their soul. He did not need a blindfold. He knows what opposition and argument is. And you and I are going to face it when we declare the message about him. Acts 4, 25 through 26. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Listen to the summary statement. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, and against his Christ. Boy, that helps reshape those words that Jesus says, they will hate you because. So go back to the center place of your world and speak, but stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel and speak to all of the people. Do not withhold it from anyone. You and I cannot be the 
pickers or the choosers of who is going to hear this message. We also go and stand firm in the gospel, and we cannot miss this in those words. He says, go and stand in the temple. Stand firm in the temple and speak to all the people. Speak all to the people the words of this life. A beautiful summary statement by the angel of the Lord saying, go and declare this message and life about Christ. Go tell them of the way. Go tell them of the path of God. Go tell them of the kingdom of God is summarized in those words, all the words of this life. Yes, live like a good Christian near your neighbor, but your neighbor needs to hear all of the words of the gospel, all of them. He needs to hear them. Go stand firm in the gospel. The gospel is the only thing we actually can stand firm in. But here is that sense. We're going to have to do this in the face of great evil. The depravity of the enemies of God and his kingdom are clearly in the text that they belong to the kingdom of darkness because it says down here, look at verse 32, it's just one sample in all of the scriptures. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And in the very next breath, and when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. Up earlier in the text, up in verse 17, says they were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles. So let's put these words together. They're, they're filled with jealousy and they arrest the apostles. Down here, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. There's a combined effect of the great evil that has so plagued the hearts of these men. When they hear the gospel the first place they go is not to their knees to ask God for forgiveness. The first place they go is to rage. They go to this word called enraged. In other words, they were sawn through by these words. They hear these. It's almost like you hear them. Remember, they cover their ears at that one point. They don't want to hear this message. It is so in contrast and so in conflict with the depravity that has wrecked their lives that there is, by definition in that word, enraged, an anguish of the mind, I got this out of one of the commentaries, anguish of the mind leading to violence. It's almost like one word saying they were so angry they wanted to kill them, and that's why we have what we have. They were enraged and wanted to kill the disciples. The depraved, black-hearted evil is clear in their motives and actions. Self-preservation and murder filled their hearts. We know that self-preservation, jealousy, because it is wrecking their kingdom. And then two, murder fills their hearts. And if you're wondering, what do you mean by that? It says they wanted to kill him. But James 4.2 says it's true as well. You desire and do not have, and so you murder. And what are they wanting? They want these men to shut up about Jesus. And so they're going to kill them because they won't. The church is commissioned in the gospel of Jesus that will advance in power no matter what. This opposition is powerful. Let's consider the opposition further. In the face of active opposition, this is not just an error of disagreement or confrontation. And you and I are very familiar with this opposition. Just get on social media for a little bit and you feel the air of disagreement. Folks are ready to argue. You don't have to go very far. You hang out with the right people at church, which, by the way, is from both sides of an argument. And the Lord, in his amazing grace, has saved them and said, community group. 
Isn't that awesome? As soon as you open your mouth, a conflict brews. Seemingly at times. With some, that's just in our home. <laughs> just ask my wife. We don't have to get to community group. Uh, there's active argument ready. We know what this is like. But this opposition is more than just that ready to argue. Well, yeah, well, you think, well, I think this. I don't even think clear. I lose words in my vocabulary, and I sound like I'm from East Texas, and I'm not when I get angry. But that's exactly the way I'll sound. No, this is the kind of opposition that moves and acts. There is such a disagreement. There is a movement and an action against the church, against those who believe that follow Jesus. You know, I don't like this message that you're talking about Jesus. I don't like it at all. Uh, what would you like to have for lunch today? It's, it's, it, no, it's, I don't like this message about Jesus. And if you don't stop talking about it, I'm going to kill you. That's the type of opposition that is here. There's legal action being threatened, life-destroying reputation, excuse me, life-destroying action, reputation killing, action leading to physical harm and death, and we'll get to that in the next point. Opposition to the good news of Jesus, though, does these two things. If you thought, man, this is so bad news, it's not. Listen to this. This I love about the text. Opposition to the good news of Jesus will, provide, number one, provide further paths for the advance of the message of the cross, and it will clarify the message of the cross. So what's amazing about this is these men are so incensed, I mean so moved by the power of God to declare it, and their enemies are so moved and enraged, they want to destroy them. And what is the result? What, that they're finally killed one day? Yes, we'll read that in just a minute. No, actually provide further paths for the advance of the mission of, mission of the cross. We'll see that over and over and over again in the text. And we will see it over and over and over again in history. And also the clarifying the message of the cross. Let's look at both sides of this. Number one, opposition serves to provide further paths of advance of the message of the gospel. So here, here's what the narrative describes, and that I just drew out of the text. Opposition served to provide these paths, these further places of direction for the message of the cross to go through and to get to. One, the public jail. So it's getting declared in the temple, we can't miss that, but in the public jail, in the high priest's office, in Israel's courtroom, that's literally like on our Senate floor, in a sense. In, that's just this narrative, by the way. Read Acts, find out where it all goes. Uh, go to the gospel narratives, it goes to places it should not go, Samaria and the surrounding area. In Israel's courtroom, among the council members, among the officers, among the guards, among the believers and members of the church, among, we need the gospel, by the way, among the followers of the apostles, in other words, the people who are not part of the church, but they're following them, shoving their kids out in front of them, as it were, soon to become members of the church in the town, in the region, house to house. Just in this one short section of passage, is the gospel advances in the midst of opposition to all of these places. Without this opposition, it would not have got there. God is amazing in his plan that he has so ordained that the human heart that began in the garden saying, get away from me, I want to rule this planet, is actually going to be one of the primary ways this thing is going to spread. 
He kicks them out of the garden, will not let them come back into the garden, meaning they can't eat of the tree of life anymore. That's horrible and a gift because they're now in sin and he will not let them live forever in their sin because he's making a way to salvation. (laughs) The paths begin. The paths are many that are opened in the face of opposition. But number two, on this, or small number two, whatever you call that, I and I, I, I just wrote two. The opposition served to clarify. Not only did it make more paths for the gospel to advance, it served to clarify the good news of Jesus as well. We hear that part of the good news is we must obey God. Go. Jesus was killed on a cross that's communicated by Peter very clearly by sinners, but by God for sinners. And it's true in the text. They're saying, oh, this is bizarre that the nation, I mean, that the leaders of Israel live here. In one minute in the, in the gospel narrative, they are screaming, let his blood be on our heads. And now they're telling the disciples, oh, don't you come in here and try to put his blood on us. And we know from the nature of the gospel, we need his blood on us. And so in that proclamation of the gospel, Peter says, no, actually, you did kill him, and you killed him on a cross. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God, leader and savior. Jesus is the king. Jesus gives repentance. Jesus gives witness. It gives, excuse me, Jesus gives forgiveness. He gives repentance. He gives forgiveness. We are Jesus' witnesses, and the Holy Spirit is Jesus' witness, given to those who obey, right back to the very beginning of that. Obey, and you'll see the power of God at work. This is not that earning of the power of God. This is, do what I told you to do, watch what I will do through you. I will give you power. So the opposition serves to provide further paths of the advance, but it also further to clarify the good news of Jesus Jesus did die on a cross. God raised him to life as part of this message. You may be here this morning, and you're like, man, this is a long story, and it's drawn out, but what's packed in this message is the message that you so desperately need. If you have not believed in Christ, hear the words of this message. Oh, there is suffering coming, and there is opposition coming. You cannot imagine what it is When Christ returns in the clouds and his voice is heard again, where he puts down the nations, he calls out evil and destroys it, casts it into the lake of fire, that's opposition. It's great opposition. It's divine opposition, and it's coming for you. If you're here this morning and you have refused to believe in Christ, I beg you to believe in him because what waits you is only judgment. An unimaginable suffering is coming for you. Believe in Christ. Your sins have put you at odds with God. You, in a sense, with Adam, were cast out of his presence. You cannot come back into his presence on your own. You need the Savior that these men are preaching about. You need to turn to God in forgiveness and believe that Christ is the Savior. Believe in him. But for the believers that are present, we get to hear from James, be patient as we wait. James writes these words to the church as we wait. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming 
of the Lord. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the witness of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I don't know about you, but when I hear of the opposition, the thoughts of murder and destruction, that was me prior to being saved. That was me. Well, finally, number three, the church's gospel mission not only advances in power and in opposition, seemingly it advances in worse circumstances, suffering. The suffering is real, and at times it's overwhelming in this text. The disciples truly, they truly are suffering physically and greatly. They're imprisoned. There's charges being brought against these men. All of their families that are real and alive are going to be destroyed by this event. All of the provision for their family is going to be taken away. Everything is going to be gone, and the violence is before, even after they relent after this worldly argumentation from the number one guy in Israel, like, ah, you better let them go. You might be going against God. That's kind of the feel to the text. I've really dumbed it down. It's called the East Side Slandered Version. The violence is real. These men are flogged. They're whipped to the point that their backs are flayed open. And then they're released. Suffering is real. It is in the suffering that Christ does, a such, a, does such a powerful work in us, in the church, that when we suffer for his namesake, we are moved toward rejoicing that we have been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And we hear that in this part of the text, which is in, uh, near the end. In fact, the words ending this section um, in verse 41, and they left the presence of the council after being flogged, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer is shocking. Rather than being angered by their personal God-given rights that have been violated, think about that in today's world. We go to the nation's capital, we preach Jesus, they throw us in jail, no court, flog us, set us free, and the news agencies won't say anything about it. Where are our hearts going to go? Where do we go in this? It's not just these disciples are not just angered that their personal rights and their God-given rights have been violated. They immediately rejoice in the confirmation in their soul that they belong to Christ and he's worth it all. This was helpful for me to study this because I've never come under this kind of persecution personally, like in your face, physical harm, Actually occurring, not threatened, actually occurring for the name of Jesus. I've never suffered under this. So it took me a while to even taste of it, but I tasted of it, and we can taste it together. Their suffering, so connected, so connected them further to their master and King Jesus, who suffered in an unimaginable way that it moved them 
to one experience maybe a little bit about what he suffered, but they immediately connected to that they were connected to him. They immediately connected their suffering that they were connected to Jesus. And that's what's happening in the text. It's not like, hey, we were beat in man, we're now we're part of the movement of God. That sounds bizarre if we translate it that way. No, this one is real. Their blood was real. Their pain was real, and it was lasting as they leave the prison, and the next morning, I don't know what they did during the night for their backs, but the next morning, they're back at the temple, and they continue on house to house. This kind of great suffering for the name of Jesus had the effect of moving the disciples to worship and glorify their Savior. The church also, and these disciples also, um, find their identity further galvanized in Jesus through their suffering. The apostles will go on and finally suffer in indescribable ways. Kent Hughes says this following or just commenting about this angelic call. In Acts 5, the angelic liberation was not only meant to free them, but to encourage them and to encourage you and I. The apostles now knew that God would deliver them from the world's clutches anytime and anywhere. And I'd expect this chapter to end. Like, that's right, anytime and anywhere. It's kind of like my summary statement today. The gospel is going to advance anytime. We're not to that quote yet, if you're wondering that was up there. The gospel is going to advance regardless of what happens. And then he writes on. If church traditions are correct, Matthew knew the reality of an angelic presence when he suffered martyrdom by the sword. So did Mark when he died in Alexandria after being dragged through the streets of the city. Luke experienced the same as he was hanged on a large olive tree in Greece. It was John's realization when he was scarred in a cauldron of boiling oil and lived his last days banished on an island. So it was with Peter as he was crucified upside down in Rome. James as he was beheaded in Jerusalem. James the last when he was thrown from the high pinnacle and Philip when he was hanged. Bartholomew when he was scourged. When he was scourged and beaten until he died. Andrew, when he was bound to a cross and preached at the top of his voice to his persecutors until he perished. Thomas, who was run through with a lance. Jude, who was killed by an executioner arrow or killed by executioner arrows. Matthias, who was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas, who suffered the same fate at Salonika. And Paul, who was beheaded in Rome. And on, and on, and on it goes. Now you can put up that quote from Kent Hughes. All of these died knowing that God can deliver his people anytime he wants. Scripture says that when waves of persecution or trial come, God can deliver us if he so wills. No matter how dark or oppressive the wave, he can rescue us. Believe it. Believe it. God for godly men and women to write these things. (laughs) 
rest of my outline here again. Charles Spurgeon writes this in a sermon he, it's titled, A Happy Christian. If an old reformer writes a message and is titled, A Happy Christian, get ready. Because he had such a taste of the difficulty that the church would face. The worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses God when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks upon him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. So now we're going to start hearing some of the call to us, church. Trust him where we cannot trace him. Look up to him in your darkest hour. Believe that all will be well. It doesn't mean that there isn't any anguish or pain or tears or severe suffering. But it does mean that in these times we are enabled to trust and believe that all is well, truly well. We sing, and just saying this earlier in the song, Mercy is More by Papa. Our sins are many, his more. What a beautiful, hopeful picture for a sinner. And in the same stead and in our times of anguish, we can add this line to the song. Our sufferings are many. His deliverance is more. sufferings are many. His deliverance is more. And they wrote that song, I just learned this, from a message, a letter that John Newton had written. And John Newton writes this, just bear with the old English. It's so helpful to East Side guys like me. Sorry, if you're in El Paso, that's a, that's a reference in our town. We're the rednecks in El Paso. Are not you amazed sometimes that you should have such, so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinketh of you? But let not all you feel discourage you. Listen to these words. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out that come to him, why? Should we fear? That word that he uses, desperate, I looked it up, and he's using the more pure version of that word. It's that state of desperation where any sense of hope is lost. Despair is caught in the word. So if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be only in despair so church, let not, you, not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts not one, uh, cast none out that come to him, why should you fear? My call earlier to those that have believed in Christ, hear that, come to him. Come to the Lord. He will not turn you away. It does not matter what you have done. And here's the effect on this. For the church, if the Lord is able to save like this, if he is able to manifest his presence and literally set us free from prison and to give us strength in our scourging, then he is able to save us, to free us at will 
from anything that may come. That's the effect on the apostles. They're going to go on and die in between that time and what we're going to discover as we continue on in Acts is it is all worth it. Personally, for me personally, some of the most precious truths of the nature and character of God have been etched on my soul forever, and I can truly say it was worth it when I look back. Oh, I don't want to go through the suffering again, but I can say it was worth it because of what it accomplished in my heart. Because through these times, the Lord has revealed his presence like none other and his salvation and comfort and healing of the soul like none other. But he's done so in such a way to lead me to repentance and forgiveness and hope in him. Jesus made it to be all the more worth it. I was about 21 when my dad died. And as I was writing this word, just the first one that came to my mind, that through suffering, the Lord has done his deepest work. And part of my testimony is, at the death of my dad, the Lord saved me. The very next night, the Lord saved me. But I remembered something yesterday about suffering. I don't remember the graveside service for my dad. I don't even know if we had one. The suffering for me was so great. I just blocked it. I just blocked it out of my mind. I remember the memorial service. I remember my dad dying. My wife and I were in the room. My dad breathed his last after a fight with cancer. She wasn't my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend. But she's my wife now. He breathed his last, and I remember the memorial service like it was yesterday. I can, I can hear and see all of the preachers, including my, my papa, Asked me one day about him. I don't remember the graveside. It was so hard. But I remember the day after he died. Because he saved me. Tim, you mentioned the loss of your brother earlier. The very next one I was going to point out was the loss of my brother. I remember something. Danny died about five years ago or something like that. One of our grandkids was miscarried during the week of his memorial service. That's how bad it was during that time. But we watched through that suffering one of his immediate family members completely be changed over about three or four years. Moved from she had all, she had all, all given up on all this church thing in the Lord to now she leads grief ministry at our church. Is one of the most precious members that we've got and cares for people. The Lord does his most precious work. So here's where we go, church, with this. Here's our application that I thought I would just mention and then close. Obey God rather than men. It's so clear in the text. The Holy Spirit is given when we obey. You know, the rage and opposition and suffering is just waiting for us. We are called in this verse to obey God rather than men in the face of that. There are situations in which we're called to really be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can kill us. Our Lord will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to you. We're still not going to give in. So obey the Lord. You know, if I started with this, this would sound like, oh, yeah, I need to obey him. Man, when you hear how it's connected to Christ and his suffering and how good and powerful his presence is, then when we hear the words that are clearly in the text, obey, then we're like, I want to obey. I want and need the Lord so desperate to be 
with us in this proclamation. Number two, get back to it. They're in the temple, they're arrested, and the Lord saves them. And I'm thinking, man, he's going to send them on to the next town. You know, they've already preached the gospel there. No, he says, go back to it. So go back to it. Church, we're called to get right back to it. Maybe you've blown it with your friendship at work. You know, maybe it's just been so difficult with that neighbor or that family member. You've talked about Jesus. They don't want to hear it anymore. The Lord says, go right back to it. Right back to it. You know, if they didn't go right back to it, I don't know if we would have had the Apostle Paul later. That's coming in an amazing persecution text. It's coming. Go right back to it. Obey me in this, and I will show you my power is what the Lord is saying. Why should we expect anything else? It would be rather strange for us to refuse to do what he has called us to do and then wonder why he didn't give us power to do it. <laughs> okay, I need you to go. I need you to preach the gospel. I'm not going to do it. Well, then I'm not going to give you the Holy Spirit. Well, why not? That would be a strange response. So obey. Go back to it. Obey and go back to it. If he calls us to this, it is certain that he will empower us to do this. And finally, never give up in it. I could have the band come up at this point. If this is where the band comes up to like finally communicate, he's finally got enough to say. Here it is. Never give up in it. Never give up in it. Perseverance that sustains us is at our hand. So stand firm, hold your ground every day, not stopping to preach that Christ is Jesus, that the Christ is Jesus. Never give up in it, counted worthy to suffer. So don't give up even when we suffer. Get back to it no matter what may come. Opposition, suffering is worth it because you will see how precious the Savior is all the more and how mighty the hand of God will be again and again and again. Last week, Derek, I thank God for the preaching in this pulpit. I loved last week because we were at the tail end of our COVID fight and all the things you're supposed to do after COVID. We were at home and uh, get to watch uh, my, my favorite preacher, Ricky, and then my other favorite preacher, Derek. Derek quoted C.S. Lewis. He told you the story. I want to tell you the whole thing. Referring to Aslan, illustratively as Christ in the text. And answering, I think it's one of the beavers, which is just fun in that. I wonder what he sounded like. He said, of course, Aslan isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king. Christ is not safe. It will be hard. But he's good. He's the king. He is using his present and coming opposition and suffering for his will. And he has ordained the day in which every single moment of anguish, every sleepless night, every pain and suffering, the stinging eyes of tears and hearts bowed down with grief will be redeemed in great manifest power. The church is commissioned in the gospel of Jesus that will advance in power no matter what may come because Jesus is our king and we belong to him 
And he is with us right now calling us to get back to it and never give up no matter what may come.